Well, it's good to see everybody today, those of you who are joining us in person, those of you who are joining us at church online or listening on our podcast or watching on demand. Uh, thank you. We're always so glad uh, that you're here. Here's something you need to know. We at Faith Community, we are in a season of generosity. All we're trying to do is to do some things for people who can't do those things for themselves. For instance, in the middle of last summer, uh, we introduced a project we called Giving Summer, uh, where we took a few weeks to support three different projects, including collecting school supplies for local schools and non-food items for loaves and fishes for our local food pantry. We ended up with, with good-sized boxes of supplies for 10 area schools, and we ended up with about 200 pounds of non-food items for loaves and fishes. Throughout the year, our care team is pretty active and usually kind of behind the scenes and kind of off the radar, uh, working to meet some felt needs as we're able. Um, our care team helps with things like providing meals uh, after hospital stays or surgery or sickness. And when we're able, uh, we try to help people with those unexpected emergency expenses a few times a year. And, and by the way, if you're interested in being a part of that, uh, we have a team of people who have stepped up, who have identified themselves and have said, I'm willing, we're willing to donate donate towards these care team projects once a year, twice a year, four times a year, or whatever. If you'd like to be a part of that donor team, uh, we'd love to plug you into that. You just uh, come talk to me uh, some Sunday after church, talk with Kevin Braley uh, about that. Then 2023 was so much about resuming our Guatemala medical missions. We raised about $3,000 through, I think, six continental breakfasts before church. Those proceeds bought uh, nutritional supplements for dozens of households and covered uh, most of the airline baggage fees uh, for our 46 suitcases. Then, on top of that, you gave another about $3,000 to $3,500 to purchase supplies from our Amazon wish list for that trip. And on top of all of that, our 21 team members paid $2,000 each. That's money they raise and that they pay on their own to serve for four days uh, just a couple months ago in some remote mountain villages in Guatemala, in Guatemala to bring some, some basic medical care uh, to people who don't have access to so many things that we take for granted. Then in the fall, we did Operation Christmas Child. We've done that for over 20 years now. This year we collected, I think it was 224 boxes. We figured in talking with some people that the average box costs around $25 to assemble, and then we pay $10 per box to cover all the handling. So that's around $8,000 all told. And then right before Christmas, uh, we collected toys for Downey's community partners. And I've probably forgotten something that we've uh, tried to do to help people throughout the year. So here's something to think about. As we do for others, what they cannot do for themselves I don't want you to miss the fact that God has done something for us that we cannot do and could not do for ourselves. In fact, if I can be very direct, I don't want you to miss the fact that God has done something for you that you could not do for yourself. So that's what we're going to talk about today. If you've ever read the New Testament or if you grew up in church, this may not be a, a new idea, but it might be, uh, might be, I don't know, because sometimes we just uh, miss it. We just fly right over it and we miss it. And it's this, that followers of Jesus do for other people because of what God has done for us through Christ. So I'm just going to repeat that. Followers of Jesus do for other people because of what God has done for us through Christ. 
Like for followers of Jesus, it's not simply do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That's kind of a baseline. But it's more do unto others, Jesus said, as God through Christ has done unto us. Like that is the standard. This ought to be the driving force behind all of our interactions with others. So if you've ever wondered, like, what should I do in this particular situation? How can I help? What does help look like? How should I treat him? How should I act towards her? Like, well, ask the question, how has my heavenly father treated me? Like, what has my heavenly father done for me? That should be the filter. So here's kind of the trick, and this will help you if you are a Bible reader, or maybe you're just starting to read, like, the Gospels for the first time. Uh, As followers of Jesus, we base our behavior on what Christ has done for us in the past. But when Jesus walked the earth, Jesus did for others to prove that he was sent by God to do something for everyone. That when Jesus did good deeds, when Jesus did good things for people, he wasn't doing it in light of something that God had done in the past. When Jesus was on this planet and when Jesus was walking around and doing good, he went around doing good in order to point towards something in the future. The reason Jesus did miracles, the reason Jesus was compassionate, the reason he did some of the things uh, that he did was to demonstrate the fact that first he had power. So that when he claimed to do the thing that was the most important thing that anyone would ever do in his own future, that people would then take him seriously and people would pause and give it serious consideration. So as followers of Jesus, like we're good to other people, we're compassionate in light of what God has done for us. But Jesus was compassionate in light of what he was about to do for the whole world. So today what I want to do is I want to talk uh, about a passage of Scripture, kind of take you through this. If you have your Bible with you or you have your Bible app, uh, you can go to John chapter 5, the Gospel of John chapter 5. It's kind of a strange story in some ways, actually, but it reflects this incredible, incredible idea that throughout his ministry, Jesus was making the point that I'm here for one specific purpose, and all of these random, disconnected acts of kindness are simply my opportunity to prove that God has sent me to do something for everyone, and that everyone includes you. So let's read the story, and I'll share some of my thoughts on it. John chapter 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us which holy day or which festival this is. Some people think it might have been Passover. Some people say it was something different. For the purpose of this story, it doesn't really matter. So Jesus and his disciples are going to Jerusalem, and here's where the story kind of takes off, verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem, and I, I just find this really interesting, because it says there is in Jerusalem. Now, the Gospel of John didn't take its final form until about 90 or 100 A.D., but parts of it were written much earlier. And we know, we know that this part was written before 70 AD because John says there is in Jerusalem near the sheep, gate, the sheep gate a pool. And we know that Jerusalem was overthrown by Titus in the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Titus, who later became emperor, he led the Roman army into Palestine, cut off their food and water supply, crucified the Jewish deserters, and in a ruthless invasion, just destroyed the city of Jerusalem, including the second temple. So we know this part of the gospel uh, was written before that, maybe even in the days immediately following these events. So we have John writing this, I'm guessing pretty close to the time when the events took place. He says, there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. These five 
covered colonnades were no longer there after Titus destroyed the city, right? Verse 3. Here, a great number of disabled people, and we don't know what great number is. Uh, could be dozens, could be hundreds. We, we just don't know. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the, blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And I find the language kind of interesting here. So when he's writing this, the pool is still there, because there is in Jerusalem. The pool's still there, but apparently they had stopped this practice because it says there is a pool and a great number of disabled people used to lie there. Like, so it makes me wonder, did this practice stop after the events of this day that we're going to read about? So here's what's going on. There was a story or a legend or a myth in that time that every once in a while an angel would appear, um, an invisible angel would appear, stir the waters in this pool, and the first sick person into the pool would be healed. Now, the Scripture doesn't teach us that that actually happened, but that's what people believed. And I don't really have time to go into this, but back in ancient times, and in cases, some cases still today, uh, some people uh, have, have this like, completely different view of sickness and disability uh, than we do. Uh, it was all about things you've done in the past. Uh, you were being punished for something. It was about karma. It was about what goes around, comes around, that kind of stuff. And to complicate things, like there were very, very few physicians and only rich people had access to physicians. And even then, like you wonder, what did they actually know about the human body, right, at this point in history? So if you were poor, you were sick, you were basically on your own. So people in Jerusalem at this time uh, believed that this water had some kind of mystical, magical healing properties, but only when an angel stirred the water. So picture this, picture this. You have people who are left every single day maybe by their family members or their neighbors, and they're waiting for the water to be disturbed. And there's a lot of them, maybe dozens, maybe hundreds, we don't know. And this pool is big, but it's not like an Olympic-sized pool or anything. So they're waiting for the waters to be disturbed, and every once in a while, something disturbs the top of the water. And I'm thinking, maybe the wind? I don't know. But can you imagine what that looked like? All these people scrambling and crawling and climbing over each other, struggling, trying to be the first in the water. And I think inevitably there's probably a dozen people that end up in the water, right? And then, then somebody comes out and walks away and claims to be healed. Or maybe they were healed. I just don't know what was going on here. So for most of the people there, the point is this is not a happy place. So Jesus and his disciples are walking by and they see this. They know what the tradition is and they know what's going on. They're familiar. Verse, verse 5. One who was there had been an invalid. Now, this is a pretty politically incorrect word, right? But this is a, a general Greek word. We don't know exactly what this person was inflicted with, but they'd been there. This is the point. They'd been there for 38 years. 38 years. Like his parents probably brought him when he was a kid. We don't know that even at this point if his parents are still alive, but somehow he gets there every day for 38 years. He's been camping out there. He's dependent on other people to get him there. I'm guessing he's probably on the periphery of the crowd around this pool since he can't help himself, right, to get a more advantageous spot, and maybe that's why he's been here for so long. I'm guessing he's got all kinds of people between him and the water, but regardless, he's just waiting for the water to be st stirred so that he can get in first and be healed, and he's been doing this for 38 years. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there, now this is kind of amazing to me, there are lots of people lying there, but somehow Jesus takes notice of this one guy. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned, which means that Jesus must have stopped his posse of disciples, is like, hold on a second, hold on, wait, wait, wait. See that guy over there? Yeah, that guy. What's his story? And they're like, we don't know. How would we know that? He's like, well, let's find out. You go find out. I'll wait here. 
like, Jesus, why him? Like, why, why are you singling him out? Like, there's so many people here. Why him? And he's like, I, I know, I know, I know. But I just want to know his story. So they start to ask around, and people are, are like, well, I don't know. He's been coming here as long as we can remember. Somebody's been bringing him. That's his spot right there for a long time. I heard it's nearly 40 years. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, and again, I don't know how this played out, right? I don't even know the tone of the question. I, I don't know if the guy's out on the edge of the crowd, you know, so Jesus could maybe come up behind him, maybe kneel down next to him, maybe whisper in his ear so as not to make a scene, but clearly Jesus singles him out, and he kneels down next to him. This is where it gets a little strange, and, and Jesus asks him kind of a ridiculous question. And maybe, I don't know, maybe something's lost in the translation from, you know, Aramaic to Greek to English, but, or, or maybe G Jesus had a smile on his face, or, I don't, or maybe Jesus knew something uh, about this guy that made this question make more sense to him than it does to us. Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? And he's like, oh no, man, I love this place. Like, like leave me alone, dude. I, don't mess up my thing here. I got a deal here. You got, I got a good thing going on. I got, I got my spot here and I, got, I just got a couple more years to get to 40 years. They're going to give me, I don't know, a gold watch or something. So, so like, what do you mean, do you want to get well? Verse seven. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Like, I have no one to help me. Like, I need help. Like, I need that kind of help. I don't, I don't need just, like, to be healed help. I need, like, everyday help. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. He says, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Because that's what people do. Like, this is every man, woman for themselves. In fact, like, sir, I don't know who you are, but you might want to stand back because it can get ugly real quick right here when the water is stirred and you never know when it's going to happen. So do you mind kind of stepping aside because you're blocking my view of the water? I don't want to miss it. This might be the time. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. So here's a question. Why did Jesus do this? I mean, why did he choose this guy? Is he trying to get a bigger following? Is it like, it's a miracle, come check it out, everybody? And I would say no, because we find out later that like, before the guy could even like, get up, Jesus disappears into the crowd. Never even tells the guy his name. So it's like a random, anonymous act of kindness. It's like, it's like, why do you do this? Like to get, get yourself some more status with the community? I mean, no, not in this case. Was it just pity? Maybe, but why not pity on anybody or everybody else? This is such a random thing. So the guy stands up and he's like, wow, I can stand up. And he looks around and Jesus is gone. The story continues, verse, uh, the rest of verse nine. <laughs> the day on which this took place, of course, was a Sabbath. And it's like the music changes, right? In the soundtrack, it just gets ominous, you know? Verse 10, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed. Now, what should they have said to them? Like, I, I look at this, like, so they, 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 they talk to this guy who they know has been an invalid. He's been there for 38 years. He's known the community, right? And they, they, they know his situation. And they said to the man who'd been healed, I'm like, what do you say to a guy who's been healed after 38 years? You're healed. Way to go. Congratulations. This is amazing. Are you sure you're the same guy? This is fantastic. We're so happy for you. No, they said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your, to carry your mat. It's stuff like this that demonstrates to me that the Gospels, the Gospel record can be trusted because who would make this up? This has to be true. This is so like ridiculous. And, 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 and like, just to be fair here though, the law didn't actually say 
that he couldn't carry his mat. If you read, starting with Exodus chapter 20, what we know is the Ten Commandments. One of the big ten in Exodus 20 verse 8 says that the Sabbath was to be kept holy, that the Jewish people were not to work on the Sabbath. They were to keep it holy, and by and to do that uh, requires that they not do any work. And that's a pretty general prescription. And so the religious leaders, and I don't fault them for this, really, they needed to define for the people what is work. So over time, you know, what you couldn't do on the Sabbath, uh, like the list got longer and longer. So by the time Jesus arrives on the scene hundreds of years later, there are 39 categories of things you cannot do on the Sabbath. And one of the things you couldn't do on the Sabbath was carry anything from one location to another. Like you couldn't pick something up and set it down. So they see this guy carrying his, this mat, his mat, and they realize he's not going to carry this thing around all day. At some point, he's going to put it down, which means he's moving it from one place to another. And according to their rules, he's violating the Sabbath. So they approach him and they're like, hey, you're not supposed to be carrying that mat on the Sabbath. So now we got a little conflict going on because essentially this guy decided to do what Jesus said instead of what he'd always been told to do as it related to the law. Because remember what they thought about sick people back, back, back then, right? They believed that sick people were getting what they deserved. Uh, it, it was a, what goes around, comes around. In fact, at one point in one of Jesus' interactions with his disciples, they saw a guy who had been blind from birth. Remember that story? And they said to Jesus, they're like, Rabbi, who sinned here? This guy who's blind, like, he, he, did he sin? Did, did he sin or did his parents sin? Because there's this assumption that if something bad happens to you, it's because someone did something bad. So all these years, 38 years, this guy's lying there. The religious leaders, they've done nothing for him because they've thought in their minds, the reason you're lying there is because you deserve it. And then one day, this stranger comes along and does something for him, something he didn't deserve. In fact, I, he was probably thinking, you know, if I, get, if I got what I deserved, then, then this guy, whoever he is, like, he gave me precisely what I did not deserve, like, for no apparent reason. So, so, so let me tell you, you guys, why I picked up my mat. And I, I, I'm just making this up, but let me tell you why I picked up my mat. Because you did nothing for me, and he healed me. Like, that's why I picked up my mat. I decided I would go with the healer, not the haters. So why are you bothering me about this? Of course I picked up my mat and walked, wouldn't you? Like, my entire religious system left me there, but a stranger did for me what I could not do for myself, and I don't even know this guy's name. Verse 11, but he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So he's just kind of wandering around, I think, with his mat. He's kind of enamored with his idea of being able to walk around, I think. So he's walking around, and he's like, I don't know what's going on here. Like, I, I'm just learning to walk. This is kind of cool. I wonder who that guy was. Like, I don't know who this guy is, but he told me to get up and walk, and now, like, you guys are mad at me, but I'm walking around. Have you noticed? Like, yes, I'm carrying my mat on the Sabbath, but did you notice I'm walking around? Can I get a little bit of credit that I'm walking around? Like, I've been walking for, like, just a few hours now, and look how, look how good I'm doing. I'm walking around and I'm carrying my mat. It's been 38 years, but who's counting? Like anonymous, no strings attached, compassion from Jesus. Why? Like why now? 
Like, we don't know how this happens. We don't have uh, any detail. But the text says that later on, Jesus ran into this guy again, and he's in the temple now. So verse 14. So later, and we don't know how much later, but it seems like it's not long after this first interaction, like with, probably within the same day. Jesus found him at the temple. And here's how I pictured this going down, and I'm making this up. I'm filling in the blanks, okay? But I kind of think Jesus saw him before he saw Jesus. And I think maybe Jesus walked up behind him and maybe kind of scared him maybe a little bit. And I, th- I think he kind of maybe, maybe he whispered from behind, you know, before the, this guy knew who he was. And he says, Jesus said to him, see, you are well again. This is so weird. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. To which the guy turns around and he's like, what? What is happening? What, what can be worse than what I've just lived through for the last 38 years? And then he realizes it's Jesus. It's the guy who healed him. And I think they high five and they hug and he finally discovers who this is. So now he's at the temple and all we know is that Jesus knows this guy is a sinner. In fact, Jesus seems to know what kind of sin he's committed. And, and Jesus doesn't walk up to him and go, oh, nice job walking, by the way. It looks like you've been walking all your life. Good job. Guess I nailed that one. No, no. Jesus is like, hey, nice to see you again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen. So we have an anonymous act of kindness toward a sinner. And when the sinner sins after the anonymous act of kindness, Jesus does not rescind the gift of healing. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. He's like, I know who it was. I know who it was. Like, I, I got this one. I know this one. Like, I know who it is. I got his name. And he goes and he finds the Pharisees and he says, hey, you asked me who it was. I found out who it was. It's Jesus. And this is when the story gets really interesting and really complicated. And if you've had a hard time paying attention uh, so far, uh, it's only going to get worse. So hang in there. Verse 16, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Did you catch that? He's working on this very day. My father is working on the Sabbath, so I too am working. See, the Jews believed that God got a pass. He got to work on any day he wanted to work. Like, for instance, if a child is born, they realize, oh, God seems to be at work here. So God can work on the Sabbath. That's okay. If you're born on the Sabbath, you get a pass, right? So God gets a, God gets a pass, at least. God got, has this like loophole, and he gets to work on the Sabbath. So Jesus, in a very subtle way, that's about to be not so subtle, begins to equate his activity with the activity of God. Verse 18, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Wow, that just, went, that just went to another level. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So now we get a, a clue as to why Jesus did the things that he did that are recorded for us in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Jesus continues, verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself, He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. And now like they know exactly what uh, he is saying, right? They, They get it. He is aligning his actions with the actions of God the father. He's essentially saying like, do you want to know what God is like? Watch me. Do you want to know what the father is like? Watch me because my actions reflect the actions and the work of the father. And this is so offensive to them. But you know who's not offended by this? The guy's standing there with his mat, right? Verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. 
Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father, and, and, and now he divides the Sadducees and the Pharisees because the Pharisees believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. He says, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. We're like, wait, what? Like, what are you? So now you're claiming... Wow. So now you're claiming to have the power and the authority to give people life. Like not only have you equated yourself with God, now you're claiming to have the power to give people life. And the guy who's carrying his mat over there is thinking, he gave me my life back, you know. But the religious leaders are like, Jesus, now you've gone too far. Like you've been out there on the edge, but now you've gone way too far. Like what do you mean the power to give people life? Like how can you say that? To which Jesus essentially says, the reason I'm here the reason I'm doing all these random miracles and all these random acts of kindness for sinners who can't pay me back is to prove to you that I have come to do something not for one, but for everyone. And then Jesus, in this moment, takes him right to the heart of why he came to this planet to begin with. So listen to these words. Jesus has their undivided attention. I imagine a crowd is gathered by now. And Jesus says this, verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, whoever, did you catch that? Whoever, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, like whoever believes God sent me, whoever believes that I am on a mission from my heavenly Father, whoever believes that the Father has sent me into the world to do his work, to reflect his purposes, whoever hears my words and whoever believes, whoever arrives at the conclusion, whoever eyes are open to the fact that I'm here to do the work of the Father, has eternal life, and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. And I think he nods at the guy over on the side, holding his mat. Here's what Jesus is saying. The reason I gave this man his life back, the reason six chapters from now I'm going to give Lazarus his life back, the reason 15 chapters from now I'm going to take my own life back, is so you can live with the certainty that I have come to this earth to do something for everyone so that you will know with certainty that the Father has sent me into this world to do his work and his primary work is to offer all those who would receive it a life, a rich and meaningful and abundant life. This conversation goes on and on and finally Jesus, he just leans in and I absolutely love this and he says this to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, verse 39. He says, look, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now listen to this. He's like, I know what you guys do. Like as good as you are, like in the Pharisees and the, the, the teachers of the law were good people, right? In fact, that was their job. If you were to say to them, like, what do you do? Like, what do you do for a living? And they're like, oh, we're just good. That's what we do. Like our job is to be good. We get paid to be good. Our job is to be so good and so holy that if God were to do something, we would recognize it. Like that's the whole deal. If God were to say something, that we would hear it. We are, we are as sinless as men can possibly be so that God, when he does something in our midst, we will be worthy to understand and interpret the activities of God. Like we're as good as we can be. Jesus says, you diligently study the scriptures trying to find eternal life. In other words, as much as you guys look into the scripture and what we know as the Old Testament to find a way to have peace with God, to find a way to have eternal life, to be able to know with some certainty about your future, he says, you can't find it there. And there's no certainty as good as you are. You know, you fall short because the law does not give you assurance of your standing with God. The law is a constant reminder that you fail. And he goes on, these are the very scriptures that testify 
about me. He says, look, the entire Old Testament points to me. The entire scripture, the law, the prophets is a reminder that you fall short. The entire Old Testament is a reminder that you need a savior, that you need salvation. Like the whole sacrificial system and all those goats and all those lambs and all those doves that you've slaughtered for generation after generation. Like, don't you understand they point to one final sacrifice for sin? And the one final sacrifice for sin is standing right here in front of you. He says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. He's like, you think that by obeying the law, you'll find peace with God. You think that by obeying and keeping the law, you'll have a right standing with God. And you know what? The same is true for many of us church-going people. Because in our own way, our tendency is to, like, based on our conscience, based on our religious upbringing, based on just what we think and what we've experienced, our tendency is to think, well, if there's a God, like, I hope that he likes me, like, I hope that somehow God loves me, and we determine where we stand with God based on our behavior. And perhaps, like, if you were raised as a Christian or you, you grew up in church, perhaps your conscience, like, condemns you and condemns you and condemns you over and over again. And, like, and maybe you're a person who uh, tries to outweigh uh, the bad in your life with the good, right? And, and you are better than some people, and yet with all of your good deeds and all your generosity and all that you've done and try to do, when you like lie in bed at night and stare into the darkness, you have no peace with God. Because the truth is, no matter how good you are, you will never find peace through your good behavior. It doesn't work that way. You're doing exactly what the Pharisees were doing. You're diligently searching for a system of behavior that affirms you and confirms you. And Jesus, the Son of God, said such a system does not exist. The truth is, no matter how low you set the bar, you don't even live up to your own expectations. And if we fall short of our own standard for goodness, like how in the world do we think there is a standard that God has created that we'll be able to keep? And Jesus wants us to know that every time we fall short, it is a reminder that we need something we don't have. We need, something, we need someone to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Like we need a Savior. Later in the same city of Jerusalem where Jesus had done so much for so many, he would be arrested and tried and crucified. And that afternoon out on the hill that we know as Calvary, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him and saying, he saved others, he can't save himself which was kind of the point, that Jesus was sent from God by God not to do something for himself, but to do something for us, for you, for me, for everyone. And little did they know what they were witnessing. Little did they know that they were witnessing God's gift to everyone. So here's my point today. Like one by one, one by one, as Jesus did things for people, one by one, from one situation to the next, he did so to prove that he was sent by God with the power to do something for everyone. And as followers of Jesus, we serve the poor and the disadvantaged and the marginalized. And as followers of Jesus, we are compassionate in light of what God has done for us. Like Jesus did things for people who could not do things for themselves in order to demonstrate that he had the power to do something for everyone. And Jesus said, whoever, whoever, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It will not be judged, but it's already crossed over from death to life. So in this season of life in this church, as we strive to do for people who can't do for themselves and to do so with generosity and in love, 
I just, I just don't want you to miss out on this, that God through Christ has done something for you that you cannot do for yourself. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's love that's easy to see. That's what we celebrate every single week, and that's what is celebrated every Sunday in churches around the world. So if you say, you know what, Todd, I've heard that before, but the way that you've talked about it today, I, I think I'm getting it. I think I'm beginning to understand it. Like if slowly your heart has begun to open to the fact that Jesus was sent from God, but if there's never been a time in your life where you've done what Jesus has challenged all of us to do, like to believe, he, he challenged his audience, just believe, whoever believes. And if there's never been a moment in your life where you have declared your trust in Christ as the final and full payment for your sin, as the way into a restored relationship with your heavenly father, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. I want to give you an opportunity to have a moment in time where you transfer your trust in your own ability to be good enough to a trust in the death of Christ as the payment for your sin and as the bridge to lead you to a relationship with your heavenly father. And I'm going to do this because I think it's important for some of us to have a moment in time, a date and place that we can kind of refer back to. And we're like, yes, I remember that. Like, I remember the day. I remember the people around me. I remember where I was at in my life. I remember. So I want to give you a chance to just say something like, I'm transferring my trust in my ability to please God to the fact that Jesus, through his death, already pleased him for me. Like I'm making the decision today to transfer my trust from my efforts to be good enough to somehow be in good standing with God. I'm transferring all of my trust to the idea that Jesus did all this for me. Like I'm no longer going to trust in my ability, my consistency, my efforts to be in good standing with God. From here on out, my trust is in the fact that Christ has been the sacrifice for me and I'm just fully trusting him as the basis for my right standing with God. If you're at the point where you'd like to do that, I'd like, to join, like you to join me in this prayer. You can change the words. You can pray it with your eyes open or closed. It doesn't matter. You can say it out loud. You can whisper it. You can say it just in your own thoughts right now. But if you've been following enough, right? Maybe it's been a short time you've been following. Maybe it's been several years trying to figure this out, exploring, watching, listening. And you've come to the place where you're willing to say, like Matthew did, like the Apostle John did, like the Apostle Paul said, like, I believe. Then, then I want to give you an opportunity to have a moment where you can look back and say, that was the day. That was the day I made the transition from trusting in myself to trusting fully in Christ. So would you just pray with me? Would you just say, Heavenly Father, I believe. I believe Jesus is the Savior. Like I believe he came to be my Savior. I believe that when he died, he died for my sin. I believe that I can have a right standing with you through what he did. So today I'm placing all of my trust in Christ's death on the cross as a full payment for sin. Thank you for the forgiveness of my sin. Thank you for welcoming me into your family. Thank you for leading me on this path to believing in your son. Now let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the difference that that simple declaration of faith has made in my life. Thank you so much for the difference that simple declaration of faith has made in the lives of so many people in this church and in churches around the world throughout the years. We just declare on this day that we love you. We trust you. We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus, who is our Lord and our Savior.